This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with more stands than Eminem. He is the captain. I like to call them first mates. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we got some Up High in the Fridge by the Terrapin Beer Company. This is a beautifully crafted Citra Hopped India Pale Ale, ABV 5.9%, Garage Grave 3 and 3 quarter bottle caps out of 5. Whether it's camping or surfing, you can bring some Up High with you. We brought ours to the garage. And here's some big garage thanks and cheers to our friends. First up, we have Kimberly in Herndon, Virginia. And we have Mandy in Greenville, North Carolina. And a big shout out to Carrie in Port Townsend, Washington. Next up, we have Brenda B. in Oneonta, New York. And a big We Like Your Jib to Megan in Peoria, Illinois. And here's a cheers to Abigail, Northampton, New Hampshire. And last, but of course, certainly not least, we have Kara B. in Lexington, Kentucky. Everyone we just mentioned went to our website and contributed to this week's Beer Fund. And for that, our hats go off to you. And we're going to have a special garage sale for mailing list members only. So make sure you go and sign up on the mailing list. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. All right, Captain, so we have three individuals in custody which detectives believe may have been involved in the Hi-Fi store robbery and murders. Those three men are Dale Pierre, William Andrews, and Keith Roberts, all living at the nearby Hill Air Force Base. Yeah, two of them they apprehended, right? And then one of them turned themselves in. According to the papers, Keith Roberts turned himself in. We don't know the details of that. Sometimes they issue an official statement looking for someone, and then that person turns themselves in because they feel like they have no 
other right. recourse, but that's what the papers state. Regardless of how it all came about, it's time to get some more evidence in addition to what they currently have, which is witness statements and don't forget about the personal items of the victims that belong to the victims that were found in a dumpster at the barracks where the men live. To be clear, though, just because those items were found in that dumpster does not directly tie any three of these men to the crime itself. Yeah, but I wonder at the scene, do we have any fingerprints? We should have DNA. We know that there was uh, a rape that took place. Correct. So it's it's 1974. Who knows if they collected DNA or not at the time. But to further that, we do have, and, and I was going to kind of save this for later in the game, but there is a statement from one of the victims that the perpetrators of this robbery were wearing gloves at the time. Right. But what we will have, and this is going to be significant, we have a search warrant that is issued for the barracks where all three of the men lived. There, police found flyers for the hi-fi shop, you know, like sale flyers and advertisements for merchandise at the store. But what is truly going to seal the deal when it came to bringing up actual murder charges and robbery charges against these guys, it was during this search that law enforcement found a rental contract for a unit at a local storage facility. It's my understanding that not only is this found in their possession, but at least one of the men signed the actual contract. So the storage unit was being rented by them. Well, and this unit was pretty close to the hi-fi store. So what this is going to be here is going to be another quick phone call, get another search warrant, but this time for the storage unit. So following the issuance of said warrant, a boatload, or should I say two van loads amount of stereo equipment was located inside this storage unit. Very soon later, using the serial numbers on the merchandise, it was confirmed that all of it came from the store and was stolen on the night of the murders. Also recovered from the storage unit was a half-empty bottle of Drano. Yeah, that's just horrifying because we know the details with the collection of this evidence these young men were charged with murder and aggravated robbery some interesting things here captain some of the reports say that the police believe that more individuals were involved in the robbery slash theft of these items but these three men all of them airmen in the air force living at the nearby hill air base were the only persons ever arrested and ever charged in this case. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's confusing, one, that these individuals would sign up to serve and protect our freedoms. Mm-hmm. And then they would go off and do a crime like this and commit murders like this. And you have eyewitnesses that place two vehicles at the scene So is it possible that police believe that these crimes happen and maybe just two men are responsible for the attacks and the murders while there's another set of guys that were also stealing stuff? Yeah, and I think we'll we'll tear through that 
as we go along here because that's what this second half will be is really a deep dive into the details of the crime itself, who did what, and possibly even why. And you reference, you know, why these guys would sign up for to protect our freedoms of this great country and then carry out these horrific murders. And I'm not saying that this, in fact, applies here. I don't know it to be the case one way or another. So I want to please do not hear what I'm not saying. What? But, what? Right. But one thing, you know, and I get, I get these great emails from so many great people out there. And they say, Nick, why are you constantly referencing old cases that you guys have covered or other cases that you have some knowledge of? And it's for the simple fact that detectives, FBI, investigating agencies, one thing that they do is they rely on their experiences and past studies from criminal behavior, and they apply it to their current investigations. So that's why we constantly do that here in the garage. It's a true crime discussion. We're talking true crime. My comment on why these guys would sign up to protect us and then they carried out these crimes. Again, I don't know it to be the case here, but one thing I know about a lot of older cases, especially from the 60s and 70s, when you see young individuals, young men that are 18, 19, 20 years old, and they're committing these terrible crimes and they were in the army or the Navy and people were going, how did the army not catch this guy? You know, that he's some right. killing lunatic. How did they let this guy sign up for the Navy or for the army? I found in a lot of cases that you could go before a judge when you were 17 years old and you committed some minor offense. And part of your defense to get a, a lesser sentence or to get a light slap on the wrist was to say, my intentions are right after high school, I'm signing up for the army. I'm signing, signing up for the Navy. It's, it's no question that everybody receives discipline by going and signing up for and serving. Right. You, you become more mature, wiser, and discipline. And a lot of times judges see that as a way of, you know, we are or should be first and foremost in the position of wanting to rehabilitate offenders that can be rehabilitated. And so I don't mind that method so much. I don't know that it happened here, but it brings up the good question of did it? Right. I think more important is, and I had a little hard time figuring this out. Why the higher number? Most reports say that police at some point thought maybe five or even six people total were believed to have been involved in the commission of these crimes. Well, think about it. You get two vans, you have drivers in each van, and then you have two individuals taking stuff. Mm -hmm. That would be a total of six. Right. And I think a lot of this stems from another story that came out that it is believed that involved the three individuals that are currently in custody in this hi-fi case, that they, along with three other males, went into a different stereo shop in another town near closing time. And the owner says he believed the six of these men were behaving strangely. And I don't know if there was a confrontation, but there was no robbery. There was no attack that went down. Right. And so my thought is maybe that this story really 
just kind of went with police going, well, think about it too. It's 1974. The size of stereo equipment is much different in 74 than it is today. It's huge. And very likely they used both of those vans that were seen at the scene to transport all of this stereo equipment that they had to hot, they had to rent a storage facility to store it there. This was like 24 to $25,000 worth of stereo equipment. Yeah. Well, maybe when they went to this other location, if they did, and depending on how this store owner reacted or how many employer, how many employees were there at the time, it might've deterred them from trying to commit the crime that night. The thing that I think is troubling to say for certain, if there were five or six individuals involved, the three that they have in custody, it's my understanding that none of them confessed to anything. They had to take them to trial and try each one of these individuals and see if they can convict them. So it's not like a situation where we have people rolling over on one another well, and turning in other people to to um, lessen their sentence, let's say. Well, I think I, I do believe that the the driver turned on the other two a little bit, but because he wasn't inside the building, I don't think there was much a ton of evidence that he could give them. Well, if he never entered the building other than the two offenders telling him what they did, he would have no information to offer up as to what happened inside the building or specifically in that basement anyway. Right. But what we do know, this is really interesting. There were some further findings here in this case, and these are very specific. So it was eventually learned that Pierre and Andrews, that they got the idea of making the hostage drink Drano from a scene in a movie. The movie was called Magnum Force, and it was the sequel to the movie Dirty Harry. The movie Dirty Harry has its own ties to true crime, as many people out there know, as the psychopathic killer in the movie known as Scorpio. Uh Well, the movie drew upon the real-life case of the Zodiac Killer in some of the creation of ideas for that movie is that the go ahead punk make my day is that the one <laughs> i i believe it is yes okay well if anybody wants to cast me in a role they can just go to truecrimegarage.com and email me in the first so this would be the first magnum force was the first of several sequels the movie magnum force there is a scene where a woman is forced to drink Drano, and in that scene, she immediately dies. So Pierre and Andrews apparently thought that it would be a good way to kill any of their likely hostages. It would be quick. It would be silent. It would be a good method if they had to kill somebody in the commission of this robbery. However, Magnum Force is a movie and not real life. Uh Drano, for those that do not know, is an industrial strength drain cleaner used primarily for unclogging drains. When the victims were forced to drink this, their mouths and throat began to burn very, very badly almost instantly. The victims, therefore, screamed in pain. This made the assailants attempt to tape the hostages' mouths shut to silence the victims. However, This, again, because of the Drano, would not work either. 
This is because the Drano almost immediately caused blistering and blisters to form in the mouths and the throats of the victims. Their lips and skin around their mouths began to peel off. But they, but these guys didn't bring the Drano with them. That's another argument. Why is it an argument? Because because if they brought it with them, that would show premeditation? Correct. Okay. So when when all of this is occurring, not only do we have like skin that's peeling off, but we also have pus that's oozing from the blisters. And all of this then makes it impossible for the assailants to tape the victim's mouths shut or to silence them in this manner. Again, like I said, it looks like they didn't roll on one another or anyone else. The question then becomes if there was anyone else involved, did the police, did they never discover the identity of these people, never know the names, or did they, was it a situation where they had an idea of who but couldn't get the evidence to match it? Heck, it's difficult to say if Keith Roberts was even offered a deal to talk or testify against anyone, specifically Andrews and Pierre, because that's who might be willing to deal, who you, you know, law enforcement might be willing to deal with out of the three in custody. Now, in regards to two of the three arrested, I do know from newspaper reports that William Andrews said he was seeking a public defender. And Pierre said he already had counsel because he had been charged with auto theft a few months earlier. And because of that charge, he already had an attorney fighting for him in that charge. So let's get to the trial here, Captain. Jury selection began in the fall of 1974 in Farmington. Notice we didn't say Ogden, right? In Farmington. They moved the trial from Ogden because of all of the publicity. This would end up being one of the fastest turnarounds I can recall, but you have to keep in mind back then when you had a really horrible crime that really just devastates everyone. Right. They move faster. They move a little bit faster. So, Which Which I think maybe we could learn something from. I think that's something that we could do better. And in the justice system now, I think both ways, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like back then specifically this case moved along a little too fast for my liking, Okay, but I also see some cases nowadays that seem to drag on way too long for my liking. Right. Okay. So when you have a really horrible crime, you know, we said devastates everyone, this crime captain To say that this devastated Ogden is a huge, huge understatement. This was a shock to everyone, of course, on the local level, at the state level, and nationally. And when this happens, we're talking about things, how they may have worked in 1974. They are ready to go to trial as soon as the prosecutor says, we've built a case and we're ready to proceed. It also helps from a discovery and evidentiary standpoint. There was only one event right? There was only one event here that encompasses everything all in contrast to something like the golden state killer. Who's also known as ears or ons the original night stalker case. There are so many different events that when Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested back in April of 2018, here we are two years later and still waiting on the trial. 
And that's what I mean. It's, it's a bit of a pisser, right? When you have a case like that, when you have this old dude who will not admit to anything that he did, and he's one of the worst people ever to walk this planet, it's, it's hard to, to call him a person. Yeah. But if he is truly absolute animal guilty psycho. of all the things he's being accused of, the real kick in the nuts here for the public is this guy won't admit to anything. He doesn't want to he clearly doesn't want to be convicted of anything. He's not like BTK where BTK comes out and he's almost proud of his killings and says this is what I did and this is how I did it. No, this guy He says, "Sit down, let me tell you a story." This guy is fully ready to die and not give his victims that are still alive, many of his victims that are still alive, that little piece of some kind of closure. Oh, he's a real piece of shit. Now, I will say in the defense of the court system out there in California that I do believe that COVID-19 has affected the start date for that trial because I remember reading in January of 2020 that the judge was saying look defense team for d'angelo you've you've dragged this thing out long enough we're going to bring this to trial and i think he put a date on on the end of april 2020 and of course we know the the whole world changed between january and april of this year yeah it's been the worst year i think i've been alive yeah. I mean, it's been a very tough year. Number one, I heard a joke the, the other day, which I, I found to be one kind of funny, but also kind of smart that said the, the two, the two smartest Americans in the world left the world <laughs> it, it, it took off into outer space. But so I guess if you really want to compare this to, to a more modern day case, I would compare it to the Cheshire murders which we covered back in Halloween of 2017, episodes 154, 155. It was a home invasion, and the murders took place in June of 2007, and the trials didn't go down until one was in September of 2010, and the other was the following year in September of 2011. That was the case where the the husband was in the basement? He He was asleep on the couch. They knocked him out tied him up in the basement it's weird because that case mirrors the hi-fi murders case quite a bit when you think about it right because you had the the dad in this situation the hi-fi murders get loose and and try to get to help yeah and both of them you have the perpetrators from from what we can what we can deduce from both of these crimes is it appears that both sets of perpetrators understood that there were going to be people inside the one, the residents, one inside the shop that they were going to have to control and do something with or two while they robbed the joint. Mm-hmm. So that for me is very similar cases. And of course that case, they were seeking capital punishment. Those were capital punishment trials. And that's what we would see in the hi-fi murders as well. So this is going to be a joint trial, which I'm not a, I'm not a real big fan of, I, I really feel like I hate them. I really feel like everybody should be tried kind of individually because I think that there are, there are some people that are more guilty than others in the commission of some of these crimes, especially when we're talking about murders, especially when we're talking about the death penalty cases. And I almost feel like 
some of the lesser guilty, maybe they are guilty, but the lesser guilty people get lumped in with the more guilty, and that doesn't seem to be fair to this garage idiot. Well, and because in this case we have multiple crimes. Right. We have theft. We have we have taking over the building, so we have hostages. We have, uh, again, we have three individuals. Not all three are involved in all those. We have the rape. And then we have the attempted murders and the murders. Right. And you have to separate who did what and when. And then. And how responsible is each person for what they did themselves or what they were a part of, you know, just being there. Right. So from my understanding here, Captain, we have, again, a joint trial. All three, Pierre, Andrews, and Roberts are charged with first degree murder and robbery. And the trial began on October 15th, 1974. During the trial, it was revealed that Pierre and Andrews had robbed the store with the intention of killing anyone they came across. Survivor Oren Walker was the star witness for the prosecution. Oren took the stand and told the jury how Pierre and Andrews, Pierre actively was determined to kill everyone in the store. His testimony was by far and away the most damning to all of the defendants, Pierre and Andrews especially. Here we have a guy that suffered and somehow survived an attack that he can give firsthand knowledge of and recount the murders of three and the injuries and how they happened to himself and Courtney Nisbet. Well, and the torture that took place. Yeah. The thing here, Captain, that is going to be a real, real bad problem for Pierre and Andrews. One is the fact that that we have the testimony from Orrin that Michelle begged and begged and begged for her life. That she pled, pleaded with them not to kill her. This is after she was brutally raped. We also have the fact that all said, all of the victims that are tied up saying, hey, just take anything you want. But don't kill us. Please don't kill us. You can take anything you want. So what what this is pointing out, we are not talking about a robbery where any one of the victims is going, that's giving any type of resistance at all. Right. None of these victims are making anything more difficult for these robbers. They're compliant. It's like you've said in many cases, if the intent was just to steal the stereo equipment, you had no resistance. So obviously you that could have done that. That wasn't your intent because you murdered these individuals and tortured these individuals. And it's reminiscent of what we talked about a few weeks ago, right? With Paul John Knowles, an individual who was robbing people, stealing their vehicles, sometimes stealing their identities, taking their money, their personal possessions. It appears that very few of his murder victims, and it's believed that he killed a lot of people. Very few of them even knew who he was, meaning he could have just taken their items and left, but he decided that he had to kill them. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL 
is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. 
Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. So before the break, we were talking about the problems, the damning testimony coming from Oren Walker, telling everybody, hey, this is what went down during the commission of these crimes. This is how these people were killed and by whom. We also have further testimony from Warren that we didn't get to. And this is going to be very troubling, especially for Pierre, because Oren is on the stand and he's saying, look, Pierre returned to me twice to make sure that I was dead. Right. And when he still found me alive, the first time he strangled me with a cord, then he leaves again. And then the next time he returns with a flashlight to assist him in taking my pulse to see if I have a pulse. And when he discovers that I do have one, I'm still alive Pierre once again tries his best to end my life by jamming a pen into my ear and kicking it and stomping on it until the point that it broke through. And we know that it went through into Oren's throat. In my mind, Captain, no doubt Pierre thought that the pen busted through into the brain. Right. And it was only then that he thought the deed was done and did not feel the need anymore to check the man for a pulse. Yeah. So it was really the testimony of the survivor of this this victim that is going to help seal the deal here. Now, due to his amnesia, suffered from the many, many injuries that were part of the commission of these murders and robbery, Byron Courtney Nesbitt was unable to testify. He's got, you know, he, he does have memories of the crimes. But during the trial itself, he was unable to testify. Yeah. Just one month after the start of the trial, this is on November 16th, Pierre and Andrews were convicted of all charges. And Roberts, the third man, was convicted of only robbery. Four days later, Pierre and Andrews were sentenced to death. Let's just go back to that for a minute because the driver, what they were able to find out is that, yes, he drove the vehicle there, but he never went inside. So he not only did he not witness what happened, so he wouldn't have been able to stop it because he didn't witness it, but I don't think they even told him what they did when they left. So he didn't even have knowledge of, of those crimes. Well, and according to our two surviving victims, 
what their statements have always been is they believe that the majority or all of the merchandise that was stolen from the store was removed before anybody was killed. Right. So Roberts was sentenced to five years to life, five years to life imprisonment for his, his involvement in these crimes. The other thing here that I want to point out, Captain, is a really tricky detail in all of this. The men that committed these crimes, were, they're not idiots, right? These are, these are relatively intelligent men. Their acts in, in criminal behavior is, is disgusting. But one thing that I've always had trouble with this, especially with Pierre, with this individual, Pierre. Well, they're capable of being in the Air Force. They broke into the hi-fi shop shortly before it closed. You didn't have to have any victims is what I keep returning to. Yeah. You could have, they're, they're relatively intelligent individuals. They could have, they could have easily, anyone, you know, they're, even us two garage idiots could go, you know what? It might be better for us to break into the stereo store well, hold on a after they close. Well, hold on a second. I'm looking around, looking around the garage. Like, we could use a new stereo. Just saying, <laughs> but but no no. But I I think I mean? it's like almost it, like Pierre used this as like I can get some people to come along with me to help me steal some stereo equipment. But that's not what I'm doing this for. I'm actually doing it because I want to kill somebody. To, I'm actually doing it because I want to rape somebody. To me, it feels like a double whammy situation. You know, the uh, I think he wanted to do more than just rob the place like you said right now the hi-fi murders are still regarded as one of the worst criminal acts ever committed in the state of utah the fbi academy at quantico actually teaches trainees about the case specifically the story of the detective in front of the crowd removing pieces of articles that you know the the yeah. purses the wallet personal items from the victim removing those in front of the crowd in 1982, a book by Gary Kinder titled Victim, The Other Side of Murder was released. Originally, Kinder was going to write a an in-cold-blood style book that would focus on Dale Selby Pierre, the murderer. Kinder exchanged over 200 letters with the convicted killer and even visited him several times at the Utah State Prison. Pierre turned on Kinder in 1980 when Kinder refused to sign over 10% of the book's proceeds to Pierre. Looks like Pierre thought he could capitalize on the murders even from behind prison walls. Mm -hmm. This prompted Kinder to change directions completely and focus on the victim, on one of the victims, Courtney Nesbitt, and the effect the Hi-Fi murders had on him and his family. Kinder set up a trust for Courtney based on a percentage of the book and film rights. And the case became the basis for the 1991 CBS TV movie titled Aftermath, A Test of Love. Well, and they're going to talk about the whole Drano situation as well, whether they brought it or not. And what I believe that Pierre claims is that when he was using the restroom, he saw the Drano there and that's when he decided to make the victims drink the Drano. Yeah, so I couldn't find what the original trial defense was set up, what what their whole story was, right? 
But what I could find was what we have is a, a later appeals proceeding or appeals hearing. I don't know the exact terminology for it. Basically, what we have is Pierre is nearing the execution date. He was sentenced to death. And they're going to have a hearing to give the opportunity of maybe we can commute this to a life sentence. At which Pierre speaks and he says, the Drano, I went to use the restroom during the robbery. I saw the Drano there. I put two and two together and thought I would use it on the victims. The problem you have with that is we do know at the original trial, Oren Walker's testimony was that at some point after everybody was tied up, one of the men, he heard one of the men say to the other man to go get something from the van outside. Right. And that is when one of the men returned to the basement with this liquid all of a sudden that they were supposed to be drinking. Then we have this other matter that I think we should get to before we wrap things up here today. Yeah, but can we just stay on that for just Go one ahead. second? I believe even if, you know, from what we've seen and what we've talked to lawyers and stuff, you're at this scene and you decide that you're going to make them drink this liquid, this poison. Just the thought that it, you know, to pour it into cups or however you're going to have them drink it or if they're going to, this is enough time to, to constitute as premeditation. So I, it doesn't matter to me if you brought it with you or you didn't. Like, you know, to argue those little details to try to get it reduced to life, a life sentence doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, and it would be quite the coincidence to have a completely different person saying, I saw two of the perpetrators watching Magnum Force where this woman is forced to drink some kind of liquid or Drano in the movie and she dies immediately. And I hear them discussing the, the scene in the movie, right? That's, that's quite the coincidence. Now, could it have gone down exactly as Pierre said? Maybe who knows? We, we weren't there. We don't know for certain. And Oren never says specifically that he heard the one man say to the other, go get the Drano from the van or go get, blah, blah, blah from the van. He doesn't specify what it is that he hears the man asked to go get from the drain or from the van. But regardless, like you said, captain, there is a certain level of premeditation in either scenario. If Pierre wants to diminish it to maybe get him a chance at life imprisonment instead of the death penalty. I mean, I can, I can understand pulling out all stops and, and attempting anything during that hearing. But the other thing we should discuss too, is that there was another murder. Okay. This took place on October 5th, 1973 police responded to a homicide. This is at the apartment of air force Sergeant Edward Jefferson, who was stationed at the Hill air force base just South of Ogden. It is believed that Jefferson was murdered in his sleep. He was found on his couch wearing a set of thermal underwear and his hands were still folded across his chest. Within days, police had a possible suspect, but they only knew this man as Dale from the West Indies. As they continued to interview persons close to the victim, they figured out that Dale from the West Indies was likely 20-year-old airman Dale Pierre. 
from witness statements, here is the theory that they piece together. Less than a week before the murder, several people, friends, if you will, were at Sergeant Jefferson's apartment hanging out. Jefferson's key ring with the keys to his vehicle and apartment turn up missing. Everyone there helps Jefferson to search the apartment for the keys, but they never turn up. The next day, Dale Pierre returned to the apartment, and while he's there, he suggests, hey, let's search the apartment again to look for the keys. This time, the keys magically turn up. Jefferson was very suspicious and did a little investigation of his own. Jefferson learned that Pierre took his keys to the Air Force Base's locksmith and using a fake name, Curtis Alexander, he had duplicates made of the keys. Jefferson confronted Pierre about this. Two days later, Jefferson is found dead on his couch in his own living room. The killer, this is what police could piece together. The killer had placed a pillow over Jefferson's face and drove a bayonet through his face. Oh my God. Killing him instantly with the first blow. However, that was not enough to feed the rage of the killer because the killer drove the bayonet through Jefferson's face repeatedly. The blade went all the way through his brain and the hilt of the weapon fractured his skull. The detectives believe that the killer enjoyed committing this murder. And that is why he drove the bayonet through this man's face over and over again. Police were certain that Dale Pierre was Sergeant Jefferson's killer but they never had enough evidence to bring him to trial or to make an official arrest. Well, those that's one of those cases, you know, hindsight, you're going to go, well, maybe the case doesn't get solved and maybe we can't put all the pieces together. But now that we have him connected with these horrible murders, you kind of go, well, that case is kind of solved then. You kind of wonder what else, if, you know, after you know about the hi-fi murders, what else is this guy capable of? And it doesn't seem like there's capable of anything. Yeah. That there's any limits to that. Now, Dale Selby, Pierre, some of the articles and stories you find about this guy, there are variations of his name. And that is because once he was in prison, Pierre changed his name more than 20 times. In fact, one report I saw said 27 times. He says that this is because he was trying to spare his family embarrassment and hostility from the community. Now, Dale Selby Pierre was executed on August 28th, 1987. He was the first person in the state of Utah to be executed by way of lethal injection. There was a brilliant article by Jerry Spangler in the Desiree News, and These executions are very hard to report on because there is such a mixed bag of emotions and opinions on the death penalty itself, and rightfully so. Parts of the article read, Calmly, Dale Selby Pierre blinked his eyes and licked his lips. He took deep breaths, his eyes fixed on the bright lights above his head. He wiggled his toes and muttered a quiet prayer. As the toxic chemicals dripped relentlessly into his bloodstream, One of Utah's most notorious killers calmly closed his eyes and slipped quietly into death. There was no anger, no protest, no violence from him. Selby's death was in marked contrast to 
to the hours-long torture slayings of three people in the basement of an Ogden stereo shop. There was no protest from Selby. Now, I'm saying Selby because in this article, that's the name that they are using. When he changed his name, Captain, most of the time he was, his birth name, from my understanding, is Dale Selby Pierre. When he changed his name, he really just moved around those three three names. Yeah. So there was no pre- protest from Pierre, but outside there were some 200 demonstrators, many of them opponents of the death penalty, but some of them very much for the death penalty. You have to keep in mind, though, too, there were some people who are pro-death penalty for very specific situations and not many others. I think likely that could have been the case here with several in the crowd that were all for it. The death penalty opponents sang songs like We Shall Overcome and Amazing Grace, while pro-death penalty demonstrators sang Poor Selby, Poor Son of a Gun, He's Gonna Die. One man wore pencils on his head going into his ears, a like a variation of the fake arrow trick. Right. He carried a can of Drano. Yeah. It was intended to make the point representing an eye for an eye. Dale Selby Pierre was pronounced dead shortly after 1 a.m. He was 34 years old. Pierre requested that the $29 in his commissary account be left to his friend, William Andrews. Dale Selby Pierre was the first person executed in the state of Utah since Utah executed Gary Gilmore on January 17th, 1977. So roughly 10 years between these two executions. Oddly enough, Captain, one could say that Gary Gilmore was executed for indiscriminate felony murder as well. He too committed armed robbery and both times killed the person working at the establishments that he robbed. Right. Gilmore chose the firing squad method And when asked on the morning of January 17th, 1977, if he had any last words, he simply replied, let's do it. William Andrews was executed by the state of Utah using lethal injection on July 30th, 1992. His last meal was a banana split that he shared with his sister and niece during their final visit. At the execution, and just before... Andrews did not discuss the three murders he was sentenced to die for. In a final statement, he said, thank you to those who tried so hard to keep me alive. I hope this was very controversial. I mean, they're trying to get his death sentence reduced to life for a while. Yes. So going into that, Andrews always stuck to his story that he was with Pierre, that he did help take each each victim captive and robbed the store, but he did not physically by his own hand kill any of the three murder victims. Whether you agree with that or not, what we stated from the beginning of the trials was this is one of the problems I have. And I think you have with trying, trying people together. Yeah. But then on top of that, you, I mean, you have all kinds of other issues with this. I mean, Oren, it doesn't sound like he's 100% on who did what. I mean, right. keep in mind, he's in a lot of pain. He's tied up. He's, he's face down on a basement floor. But it seems like he is of the belief, too, that Pierre is the one that was responsible for all of the murders and most of the actual physical torture. 
And then later we have Courtney Nesbitt who survived, but could not testify because of amnesia. What he does seem to remember or believes that he remembers, according to the book victim is he says that he remembers hearing the two men arguing either upstairs or in another part of the basement over what to do with the victims and that it was decided that they were going to kill them. But Andrews is saying, I can't do it. To which Pierre then says, I'll take care of it. Give me 30 minutes. But again, that's, that's the troubling thing here. Where is the line? Because obviously if that is exactly what took place, Andrews didn't stop Pierre from going in the other room and attempting to kill five people. So in that, that and you helped make the decision, right? And you, you decided know. to bring guns to the scene. You may have helped to decide to bring Drano to the scene. Yeah. There's a whole long list of, of offenses here. Now in his final statement, as said, he said, thank you to those who tried so hard to keep me alive. You pointed out. Yes, because this was controversial at the time still is controversial. I hope they continue to fight for equal justice after I'm gone. Tell my family goodbye. And I love them. A prison official asked him, this has been a long haul for you, hasn't it? To which Andrews replied, yes, I'm actually very tired. Yeah, it's very, uh, very tragic case. Keith Roberts, who was just 19 at the time of the murders, he was the getaway driver. And it was, in fact, determined at the trial that he had no role in nor knowledge of the murders. He was convicted of two counts of aggravated robbery. Roberts was paroled in May of 1987 after nearly 13 years in prison. I have seen some different reports out there, but because I cannot verify for certain, I'll report what seems to be the general consensus of reporting. And that is that Keith Roberts moved to the state of Oklahoma after his parole. It does not appear that he got into any further trouble with the law. And it does look like he passed away back in 1992. Warren Walker, the star witness at the trial of the men convicted for the hi-fi murders and robbery, passed away in February of 2000 at the age of 69. And then, 28 years after the brutal hi-fi murders that shocked Utah, Byron Courtney Nesbitt, one of only two survivors in the 1974 torture-murder rampage, died at the young age of 44. Courtney died in Seattle after a long and undisclosed illness. Courtney was shot in the head and left for dead during the commission of those crimes. He suffered throughout his life from disabilities from being tortured in the stereo shop. His father, Dr. Byron Nesbitt, declined for comment, only saying, This is the end of the hi-fi story. I want this to be the end. Again, thank you so much for listening to the show, supporting us and supporting The Garage. Thanks for sharing on social media. For everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com. For our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. It is free. And check out Stitcher Premium. We have a bonus show called Off the Record. And until next week. Be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.